traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 16, The Assyrian. Assyria had rebounded from the Bronze Age collapse as the only regional power to retain any semblance of its former strength. In the late 10th century BC, under a series of able rulers, it leveraged this advantage to recover and extend the borders of its late Bronze Age empire. As ruthless as its tactics and as devastating as its campaigns were during this period, I mentioned that this was Assyria just warming up, that it really hadn't started taking things seriously yet. This week, Assyria starts taking things seriously. Very seriously. And this change in approach is all the result of one man, the Assyrian general who would become one of the most successful military commanders of the ancient world, Tiglath-Pileser III. Assyria in the middle of the 8th century BC was a land ripe for revolution. Political power had devolved to the provinces, military power had been usurped by the Assyrian commander-in-chief, or Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu, and Assyrian kings were forced to dole out lavish gifts to influential nobles in order to retain their hold on the throne. To the north, Urartu had seized Assyrian lands. To the west, former vassals had again ceased to pay tribute. And to the south, the Chaldeans were even beginning to make noises about restoring Babylonia to its former preeminence. In 746 BC, yet another major revolt broke out across the empire. While its exact causes are unclear, it is clear that once the dust settled, Tiglath-Pileser III, former general and governor of the province of Nimrud, had defeated all rivals and seized the Assyrian throne. The fate of the previous king, Ashur-Nirari V, is unknown, but Tiglath-Pileser III claimed in later inscriptions to have been his brother, yet another son of Adad-Nirari III, and thereby a legitimate royal heir to the throne. It's just as likely that he was an usurper, with no connection to the royal family at all. But I'm guessing by the time he circulated these stories, there were very few willing to challenge his version. Incidentally, Tiglath-Pileser was the Hebraic approximation of his Akkadian name, Tekulti Apil Ashara, or My Trust is in the Son of Ashara, Ashara being the great temple of the god Asur in the old Assyrian capital of the same name. He was also referred to in the Bible as simply Pul, 
which may have been his personal as opposed to his throne name. At the risk of offending any traditionalists, for the rest of the episode, I'm going to abbreviate his name as simply Tiglath. Really, it's either that or TP3, and I really don't want to push my luck. Tiglath is equally well known for both his military and administrative reforms of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, as well as for his string of regional conquests. Since the impact of some of his reforms are evident even from his earliest campaigns and the subsequent disposition of conquered territories and peoples, I'll discuss his reforms first. Administratively, Tiglath's main tool was the division and dissolution of any competing power centers to his own centralized rule. In practice, this meant increasing the number of internal Assyrian provinces from 12 to 25, effectively halving their strength, resources, and ability to defy imperial power. Similarly, the power and prestige of the most important Assyrian military and administrative offices were diminished by assigning them to two persons at a time. As one critical example, the role of the Assyrian Turtanu was now shared between two men, a commander of the left and a commander of the right. Tiglath also maintained and expanded his predecessor's policy of appointing eunuchs to the governorship of newly conquered provinces to forestall the possibility of hereditary succession. The newly reconstituted Assyrian provinces were reorganized under an elaborate bureaucracy, with each province paying a fixed tribute and providing a military contingent. Each province had a capital city where the local king or governor resided, Taxes were collected, troops were garrisoned, trade was controlled, the great king's army was resupplied, and additional local troops were levied when needed. Another innovation with both wide-ranging and long-lasting impact was Tiglath's creation of a vast network of royal roads traversing the empire. In contrast to previous roads throughout Mesopotamia, typically little more than well-trodden paths used by locals, Assyrian royal roads were built, controlled, and maintained by the empire, and were used for both the transportation of armies as well as for rapid, long-distance communication. The roads could only be used with the king's permission, as evidenced by possession of a royal seal, and way stations were established at regular intervals where messengers could rest and change horses. If this all sounds a bit familiar, there's good reason. The later royal road system of the Persian Empire was nothing more than an expansion of the Neo-Assyrian template. In their quest to dominate the landscape, Assyrian road builders cut through mountains, bridged rivers, and built fine stone pavements leading up to the gates of their major cities. These roads also served to speed the flow of the empire's commerce, further fueling its military expansion. But of course, as Rome would later learn, good roads don't discriminate, and can speed the progress of an enemy's army as easily as one's own. As sweeping as Tiglath's changes to imperial structure and infrastructure were, they were matched by the scope of his military innovations. Perhaps most significantly, Tiglath presided over the large-scale conversion of the army from a mainly native Assyrian force that campaigned only in the summer into a much larger, multi-ethnic, professional standing army that could, and did, campaign throughout the year. 
While previous Neo-Assyrian kings had sometimes pressed conquered or subject peoples into military service, this policy was systematized and greatly expanded under Tiglath's rule. In an effort to foster unity and cohesion, foreign troops were provided with Assyrian equipment and uniforms that made them indistinguishable from the native Assyrians. One distinction that was retained was that foreigners were mainly used to bolster the ranks of the infantry, while elite mounted units continued to be comprised mostly of native Assyrians. It was under Tiglath's reign that horses, in the form of both cavalry and chariots, became fully integrated into the Assyrian army. The use of the lance, or long spear, in addition to the composite bow, allowed each rider for the first time to both hold his own weapon and control his own horse. Chariots had also evolved into heavy, four-horse-driven conveyances with iron-clad wheels, which the Assyrians used to smash forcefully into enemy ranks. The widespread use of horses, with some units consisting of hundreds or even thousands of mounted troops, made the acquisition of these animals a matter of paramount military importance. Each province had officials, known as Musarkisi, whose sole purpose was securing a steady supply of horses for the army. The Assyrians maintained their stock through a mix of internal production, tribute received from vassal states, and frequent horse-stealing raids on steppe peoples. Other military innovations introduced by Tiglath included advancements in the art of siegecraft, drastically reducing the time required to take fortified cities, the creation of a special corps dedicated to gathering enemy intelligence, the forerunner of all military intelligence units, and last, but certainly not least, the use of knee-high leather footwear in place of sandals, the predecessor of the army boot, permitting marches across any terrain and in any season. Through these and other improvements implemented during his reign, the already formidable Neo-Assyrian army was shaped into an irresistible war machine, and was henceforth directed toward reducing the whole world into a single empire, and delivering all of its people, trade, and wealth into Assyrian hands. In keeping with this new approach, it was also under Tiglath that foreign territories beyond the Euphrates were first incorporated directly into Assyria proper. This typically didn't happen right off the bat. Compliant vassal states were often allowed to retain some autonomy, and were sometimes used strategically as buffer states to reduce direct conflict with other troublesome regional powers. But once they betrayed the slightest whiff of defiance or rebellion, their kings were immediately replaced by puppet rulers handpicked by the Assyrian king. If these puppet rulers also proved too independent or incapable of governing to the great king's satisfaction, it was then that the state was finally converted into a directly administered Assyrian province. Such provinces underwent a deliberate process of having their local loyalties, even identities, abolished. One devastatingly effective tool used for this purpose was forced deportations on a mass scale. Such deportations were typically conducted in family units, with the families commanded to work the land of their new home, wherever it might be, in service to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In conjunction, native Assyrians were brought in to repopulate the province and establish a loyal power base from which taxes, food, and troops could be drawn. Even the threat of deportation was an effective psychological weapon. 
and its actual use both hampered the ability to rebel and provided the necessary manpower for Assyrian agriculture, public works projects, and military service. In a nice piece of Machiavellian thinking, deportees from one rebellious region were often settled in another troublesome border area, where they found themselves defending the Assyrian frontier against other hostile states or tribes. Tiglath is credited with deporting as many as 220,000 people during his reign alone, typically from one end of the empire to the other. It should be noted that, in integrating foreigners into the Assyrian population, the Assyrians also believed that they were actually doing them a favor. According to Assyrian beliefs, there was only one true god, Assur. The Assyrian king was his representative on earth, and the Assyrian army was his instrument of conversion, charged with bringing the entire known world under the dominion of Assur. Although Assur had but one temple, the Ashara, in his home city, he and he alone was supposed to be worshipped by all peoples in all places. Where local gods were permitted to exist, and Babylonia was literally grandfathered into this category, they must be acknowledged as manifestations of Assur, the one true god. Submitting to Assyrian rule was submitting to the will of Assur. And conversely, rebelling against Assyrian rule was nothing less than defying the will of God. With this worldview, is it any wonder that the Assyrians put down insurrections with such absolute, unquestioning brutality? On the more positive side, every person taken into the Neo-Assyrian Empire became an Assyrian citizen, with equal status, rights, and treatment, along with equal burdens of taxation and military service. The Assyrians took pride in providing thorough instruction to all new citizens in both their proper conduct and their duties to their new land, king, and god, essentially one and the same. In 744 BC, with his initial reforms in place and his hold on the throne secure, Tiglath-Pileser III decided to launch his first campaign southward, into Babylonia. As mentioned previously, 8th century BC Babylonia was a patchwork of rival cities and tribes, all competing for land, power, and resources. A series of Chaldean kings in the south had re-established some sense of continuity and stability, but were often powerless to prevent wide-scale turbulence and conflict. The previous king, Nabu Shuma Ishkun, had failed to rise to the occasion, and was replaced on the throne by Nabu Nasser in 748 BC. Under Nabu Nasser, Babylonia first began keeping detailed records of celestial phenomena, perhaps spurred on by a spectacular conjunction of the moon and planets that occurred during the first year of his reign, and also may have developed the first zodiac. While the Babylonians concentrated on mastering the stars, back on the ground the armies of Assur marched relentlessly southward into Mesopotamia. Tiglath's annals record this initial campaign as a series of victories over many great cities of Babylonia. However, other sources characterize it as more limited in scope, concentrating mainly on subjugating the Aramean tribes of the countryside, as well as sacking a number of cities of moderate significance. The major cities of Dur-Kuragalzu and Sippar were apparently skirted, although Nippur may have come under attack. 
In the campaign's aftermath, the Babylonian king Nabu Nasser actually found his position strengthened through the defeat of several local rivals, and his regime remained strong enough to put down a later revolt by the city of Borsippa. Not one to rest on his laurels, Tiglath next led his new year-round army against the Medes of the Zagros Mountains. His victory over them, also in 744 BC, inaugurated the first of his mass deportations, relocating some 65,000 Medes to the Assyro-Babylonian border along the Diala River. The next year, he led the Assyrian army northward against their one true regional rival, Urartu. For decades, Urartu had been growing in both territory and military might, and had frequently challenged the northern borders of a weakened Assyria. The first major clash between these two titans should have been epic. Apparently, it wasn't even close. The Neo-Assyrian victory over the armies of Sarduri II at the city of Samsat was so absolute, in fact, that Urartu was nearly destroyed as a regional power. Time to hit the showers? You obviously don't know Tiglath. Next on his plate was a bit of mop-up. The city of Arpad, located in northwestern Syria, had become a vassal of the kingdom of Urartu. Tiglath wanted to start his push westward by taking the city, capital of the Aramean state of Bet-Gus, just north of Hamath. But you know, sometimes it's the little things that get you, and Tiglath found Arpad to be unexpectedly resistant to the initial Assyrian assault. Refusing to accept anything less than total victory, Tiglath settled the Neo-Assyrian army in for a prolonged siege of the city. I mean a prolonged siege. For three long years, without patron or allies, the city of Arpad held out against the most powerful army in the ancient world. While keeping the city surrounded, Tiglath passed the time by conquering the nearby city-state of Hamath and deporting some 30,000 Arameans to the Zagros Mountains of the east. When the Assyrians finally took Arpad in 740 BC, its fate came as no surprise to anyone. Every single inhabitant was horribly massacred, and the city itself was utterly destroyed. After one presumes breaking for a light lunch, Tiglath continued his push westward through Syria, where he compelled tribute and submission from King Rezin of Aram Damascus and into Israel. At the time, the northern kingdom was still under the rule of Menachem, the former Israelite general who had usurped the throne from the previous usurper, Shalom. No stranger to violent conquest himself, having brutally suppressed a revolt in the city of Tifsa by destroying the city, putting all the inhabitants to death, and um, ripping open the pregnant women, King Menahem instantly knew what he was up against. One look out over the walls of Samaria at the tens of thousands of Assyrian infantry and cavalry, all clad in iron armor and wielding iron weapons, and any thought of resistance quickly died away. Instead, Menahem paid Tiglath an enormous sum, a thousand talents of silver, equal to about 37 tons, extorted from wealthy Israelite citizens. He was also forced to declare Israel a vassal state of Assyria. With these concessions secured, Tiglath pulled his army away from the city gates, to what one assumes was an enormous collective sigh of relief. Following in the footsteps of Ashurnasirpal II, Tiglath next led Assyrian forces to the Mediterranean coast. 
The Phoenicians, used to being treated with the Assyrian equivalent of kid gloves, were dismayed to find that tribute alone was no longer sufficient to appease the new Assyrian king. Instead, while Tiglath permitted the basic political structures of Sidon and Tyre to endure, they were henceforth to assume the new rule of Assyrian vassal states. Along with tribute and unquestioning obedience, the Tyrians in particular were required to put their twin harbors under the direct control of Assyrian customs officials, who would henceforth scrutinize all commercial activities to ensure they were geared toward providing maximum benefit to the empire. Nearly 500 years had passed since the Phoenicians had been the subject of a foreign ruler, and the Assyrians were an entirely different animal than the pharaohs and Hittite kings of old. The intervening centuries of relative independence had also worked changes upon the Phoenician psyche, and for many, the thought of a return to the old ways, or worse, was simply intolerable. They were too proud, too independent, too cultured, to simply bow to the inevitability of Assyrian rule, but militarily they were far, far too weak to resist it. In the end, the Phoenicians turned to the one ally they could always rely on, and mass they took to the sea. There's no precise tally of how many Phoenicians, how many ships, set sail from eastern Mediterranean harbors at the time of Tiglath's conquest. But the numbers were so great that the center of the Phoenician world soon ceased to be the ancient ports of Sidon and Tyre, and instead became the powerful North African colony to which the Phoenicians had fled, the city of Carthage. Turning southward, Tiglath next compelled tribute and submission from Judah under the joint rule of King Uzziah and his son Jotham, and Philistia, though neither territory was forced into vassalage quite yet. Next, he led the Assyrian army into northern Arabia, subjugating Queen Zabibe of the kingdom of Kedar, which he turned into an Assyrian vassal state in 738 BC. You know, I could probably save time by just telling you which Near Eastern states Tiglath didn't conquer, but I kind of feel the need to lay out the whole record, since it was so crazily over the top. In 737 and 736 BC, it was back to the east, to put down another revolt by the Persians and Medes of the Zagros Mountains. He was again victorious, this time occupying a large portion of their territory. I don't see any recorded conquests for 735 BC, so I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that's the year that Tiglath decided to take some time off to work on his novel, go backpacking through Europe, or maybe just, you know, get his head straight. Whatever he did, he was back in 734 BC with a vengeance. Around 737 BC, King Menahem of Israel had died peacefully in his sleep, a rarity in these violent times, and been succeeded by his son, Pekahiah. After a reign of two years, Pekahiah was assassinated in the royal palace by Pekah, one of his chief military officers. The motivation for the act was probably a mixture of anger at Pekahiah's perceived impiety and his ongoing submission and heavy tribute payments to Assyria. Assuming the throne in 735 BC, King Pekah quickly moved to rectify the latter situation. Pekah's first act was to offer an Israelite alliance with their old bitter enemy, Aram Damascus. 
King Rezin was also chafing at the Assyrian tribute and agreed to join the defensive coalition, which quickly morphed into an offensive coalition when the two allies declared a joint war against the southern kingdom of Judah. King Uzziah of Judah had passed away several years before, and the sole reign of his son, Jotham, had recently been terminated at the hands of Jotham's own son, Ahaz. As king, Ahaz favored a policy of greater accommodation toward the Assyrians, which naturally set him at odds with the new, more militant stance of Israel and Aram Damascus. With his back against the wall, King Ahaz of Judah sent an urgent plea for help to Tiglath-Pileser III, promising him all the gold and silver of the temple in Jerusalem. His reply was not long in coming. In 734 BC, the armies of Assyria swept down through their vassal states of Amoth, Sidon, and Tyre, and launched a series of attacks along the Mediterranean coast. First to fall was Dor, to the south of Phoenicia, followed by the Philistine states of Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Raphia, all converted into Assyrian vassal states. Next, Tiglath conquered the kingdoms of Moab and Edom, as well as a number of neighboring Aramean states, and converted them into directly ruled Assyrian provinces. In 733 BC, Tiglath arrived at the gates of Jerusalem and forced King Ahaz to fulfill his pledge, emptying the temple treasury in exchange for Assyrian aid. Even this did not completely satisfy the Assyrian king, and Judah was also forced into vassalage. But Tiglath was still more than happy to fulfill his half of the bargain. In 732 BC, Tiglath marched his armies northward into Israel and captured a number of major cities and territories, including Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee. The Israelites saw the writing on the wall, deposed and killed King Pekah, and installed the pro-Assyrian puppet king Hosea in his place. Tiglath spared Samaria destruction, but did seize a large chunk of northern Israel, which he converted into the new Assyrian provinces of Megiddo and Karnaim. Surrounded by Assyrian provinces, puppet kingdoms, and vassal states, and with its ally Israel subjugated and dismembered, Aram Damascus saw its hopes quickly fading. In 732 BC, Damascus, frequent bane of both Assyria and the Hebrew kingdoms, fell once again to Neo-Assyrian arms, and King Rezin was captured and put to death. This time, Tiglath intended to put a permanent end to the city's all-too-frequent role as focus for Assyrian opposition. He turned Aram Damascus into a directly ruled Assyrian province, and deported many of his citizens across the empire. Time to head back home? Well, that may have been Tiglath's original plan, but regional events presented him with an opportunity that was just too good to pass up. In 734 BC, King Nabu Nasser of Babylonia had passed the throne in a rare peaceful transition down to his son, Nabu Nadin Zeri. Unfortunately, any hopes of a stable Chaldean dynasty were dashed two years later, when Nabu Nadin Zeri was toppled and killed in an insurrection, led by a native Babylonian provincial governor named Nabu Shuma Ukin II. 
In a return to business as usual, Nabushuma Ukin II was deposed barely a month later by a Chaldean chief of the Bit Amukani tribe named Nabu Mukinzeri, who took power just as Tiglath Pileser III was wrapping up his Syrian campaign. Well, of course, Tiglath couldn't just stand idly by and watch an usurper seize the throne of Babylonia, right? I mean, this was a total outrage. It certainly wasn't like this sort of thing had pretty much been happening every year over the past few centuries. I mean, this was totally different. How was it different? Well, it just was, okay? And wait, I'm sorry, were you just questioning Tiglath Pileser III? Yeah, I thought not. In 731 BC, Tiglath invaded Babylonia with the stated goal of restoring a native, i.e. non-Chaldean, ruler to the Babylonian throne. King Nabu Mukinzeri immediately fled south from Babylon to his stronghold of Sapia. Neo-Assyrian forces pursued, devastating the countryside as they went and exacting tribute from other southern Chaldean tribes, including the Bit-Yakin and the Bit-Dakuri. Not everyone submitted meekly to the advancing army. King Zakiru of the Bitshahali tribe resisted, and for his trouble was overthrown, had his capital city demolished, and was hauled off to Assyria in chains. Of course, he got off easy compared to King Nabushabshi of the Bitshalani, who was impaled on a stake. Nabu Mukinzeri managed to hold out against Neo-Assyrian forces for two main reasons. The first was his ability to keep the local peoples more afraid of him than of the Assyrians, which kept them from openly turning against him. The other advantage was the terrain. The extreme south of Babylonia was covered with marshes, where the well-honed military tactics of Tiglath's army proved futile. But these were only temporary impediments to a ruler as tenacious as Tiglath Pileser III. It took two more years, but eventually, in 729 BC, both Nabu Mukinzeri and his son Shuma Ukin were captured and executed by Neo Assyrian forces. Having taken control of the country, the big question for Tiglath was what to do with it. The Assyrians had always had great respect for Babylonian civilization, even if they often found its leaders lacking, and were reluctant to convert the country into an Assyrian province. On the other hand, the region was notoriously rebellious and fractious, would never be a loyal vassal state, and any puppet king installed by the Assyrians was sure to have a short shelf life. In the end, Tiglath Pileser III, the great innovator, decided on an innovative solution. He had himself crowned as King Pulu of Babylon, the first Assyrian king to claim joint rule over both kingdoms. After 15 years of near-constant warfare, Tiglath finally returned to Nimrud, where he commissioned the construction of a new sculptured palace commemorating the numerous victories of his unparalleled military career. In 727 BC, with construction barely begun, Tiglath Pileser III died. His new palace would never be finished, but it was also beside the point. His true monument was the Neo-Assyrian Empire itself. Stable, efficient, ruthless, and poised to bring the entire Near East under the dominion of Assur. Next episode, the new era of Neo-Assyrian expansion will continue under Tiglath's son, King Shalmaneser V, and his successors. 
the age-old Egyptian-Israelite alliance will be rekindled in defiance of Assyrian power, Urartu will make one more grab for the regional brass ring, and, last but not least, we'll have a long-overdue visit from a very old friend, as the kingdom of Elam, yes, Elam, returns to the role of major regional player. All this and more, next time on The Ancient World.